In 2018, the Wealth Standard Podcast broke down the year into three seasons, each focusing on a principle from the inspired works of philosopher John Locke, specifically his philosophy on life, liberty, and property. In 2019, we progressed from principle to the ideal environment for building wealth and achieving prosperity. The theme was laissez-faire capitalism. For season two, it continues. The theme is entrepreneurship and intrapreneurship and how you apply the principles and environment to the individual. The guests ranging from economists to entrepreneurs to political influencers, authors, and more will teach you how to take your life to the next level. Now, on to the next episode. Hey everyone, Patrick here. Thank you so much for tuning into this week's episode of the Wealth Standard Podcast. We are still talking entrepreneurship. Just a couple interviews left before we move on to our next season. But listen, this is an interview I've been looking forward to for quite some time. And it's with an individual named Walter Williams. He is a distinguished professor of economics at the George Mason University. He is also the former chairman of the Audit Committee also best-selling author of Up From the Projects, an autobiography on race economics, how much can be blamed on discrimination. It's a question in the subtitle. He also wrote uh, American Contempt for Liberty, as well as Liberty Versus the Tyranny of Socialism, controversial essays. And uh, Walter also told me on the interview, I just finished the interview, that there was a video done based on his biography, which is called Suffer No Fools. And all of those links can be found at Walter E. Williams. Hey guys, what's up? Okay, I'm going to do some commentary on my interview with Walter Williams, and I'm going to do a pre-interview commentary and then some post-interview commentary and give you an idea in the pre of why I am asking the questions I'm asking. And in the post, I'll expand on some of those ideas if you're interested. All right, so the first thing really that's influencing me right now to think and to make more sense, even more sense out of entrepreneurship and what is essentially some of the resources I can provide you as budding, existing, or experienced entrepreneurs is first a book that has really intrigued me called The Mystery of Capital. The reason why it's intrigued me is because it's an individual who definitely leans toward you know, free market economics, laissez-faire, capitalism. He's you know, pro-personal liberty. At the same time, he's talking about some fundamental structure of society that is paramount to the idea of capitalism. And it's caused me to, to think differently. And I'm still kind of in the process of thinking about what he is saying, what it means, and how it could improve my understanding of capitalism, of human nature, and, and help me to be more fulfilled and satisfied with, uh, with what I'm doing in life. So this is, here are some of the points that he makes. And, I de- and definitely pick up that book if you, he's a great writer. If you haven't read it before, or if you're intrigued by some of the, the themes we've had over the last couple of years, this is definitely a guy to follow. So the idea of capital, uh, the mystery of capital is, I think we use, we've used that word so much, but we really haven't gone to the, the root of that word and where it actually came from, which the first thing that was intriguing to me, and it comes from the root of uh, the same word of cattle. And there's a difference between cow and cattle. But where capitalism came from 
was the idea that human beings figured out a way to take a cow, right, a piece of property, and turn it into so many different things. And that's what DeSoto defines as capital, not necessarily the cow itself, but the human being able to figure out how to create forms of value, whether it's the hide, turning it into leather, whether it's meat, whether it's milk, whether it's the other parts of the cow, which I think human beings have figured out a way to use every single part of it. That's the capital, not necessarily the cow itself. And he talked about, you know, that's the first point. The second is essentially the environment in which capitalism most thrives which is essentially, you know, the physical world full of resources and what goes from just simply a resource into what he considers as capital, which is, I would say, the, a derivative or multiple derivatives of resources. And that's where it's, it's just fascinating to me, right? Because capital is created there, but there's a structure and an environment in which it thrives better. So he goes through and he talks about, I'll just use two examples. The first example is real estate or, or property in general. Right, property can be defined through intellectual property, uh, an idea. Real estate is obviously physical, physical space. But he talks about in the United States. You know, we have a a very interesting property system, a legal system, a title system. Which the, he goes through the history, and it, the history is pretty fascinating. But it it talks about how it's not a perfect system, but it's one of the more objective systems that's out there which shows ownership and that ownership can be legally defended. And that is a degree that creates a degree of certainty that allows that human mind to start exercising, you know, its tendency to want to provide those derivatives like a cow, right? Figure out a way to turn what was essentially very monotonous routine, what's the word I'm looking for, just plain into the derivative of it. So turning a property into a golf course, right? The golf course is the capital, not necessarily the property. Okay. Turning, you know, just a, a blank lawn right at your home into a beautiful landscape. I think that's that derivative is capital. Hopefully that's making sense for you. The human mind engages once that degree of certainty is there. And he goes through, you know, a lot of the property systems, the legal systems of property, real estate specifically, and other parts of the world. And he talks about, you know, in the poorest third world countries, there's literally tens of trillions of dollars of capital that's possible if the legal structure was in place to provide that degree of certainty. Because I guess the human mind's not going to start acting unless it knows, and this is all like unconsciously going on, but the human mind is not going to start acting in that way until there is a degree of certainty in which the outcome is, uh, is more definite than if property wasn't able to be verified as that specific person. Therefore, their work to create capital would be for naught. Hopefully that makes sense. Business is the same way. So he you know, talks about the ability to form business in the US. Of course, there's clunky you know, systems here, but relative to other parts of the world, he used examples of having his team, his research team, go into some South American countries and try to form a business and set up shop. And in some instances, it took several months. In some instances, it took over a year. And it was extremely expensive to do it, full of red tape, full of clunkiness. Therefore, you know, the ability to provide that foundation of certainty prevents, it inhibits the human mind from now being able to create a legitimate business and improve and innovate and make it even better to provide even more value for people. For that, you know, Adam Smith's invisible hand to be exercised. And so it was just 
it was fascinating and it's caused me really to think about, okay, what is the proper role of government? Is government the best institution to create that system? Maybe, maybe not. It's created the U.S. property system, but is there a better system? And how can governments go from a more just loose and subjective system to a better objective system than what the U.S. has, whether that's blockchain or, or otherwise? I think we're always looking for a more solid foundation, a higher degree of certainty. It's almost, it's not conscious. It's like we seek that. And so it's caused me just to, to reflect. And I, I asked, you know, Dr. Williams a few questions in that, you know, in that regards, just about, you know, the environment and the importance of the environment. All right. So that's the first thing. And I'll comment more about that after the interview. The second thing was, you know, I, I joined the Tony Robbins Platinum Partner Group, which is this kind of group or membership that you have a couple of separate events that you go to, but you can go to all of his, you know, conferences and events throughout the year. And he typically does eight to 10, or there are typically eight to 10. He does most of them. And you get to go to all those for, you know, as part of the membership. So it's a huge time commitment, huge financial commitment as well. So I pulled the trigger there just because I had some experiences toward the end of last year that caused me to really understand more about myself, what I wanted in life, uh, my relationships and what was holding me back and decided that I didn't want it to be an event or a experience that was fleeting. I wanted it to be lasting. And so that's why I, I chose to inundate myself or to, you know, immerse myself in that environment for a year. And it definitely, this past summer, I've been in, you know, Amsterdam, Dallas, uh, Las Vegas. I'm going to San Diego in a few weeks. And then there's a couple other events before the end of the year. And I'm really, that immersion is, is working and it's allowing me not to just, you know, drink the Tony Robbins Kool-Aid, but it's causing me to really understand more about myself, more about the importance of psychology and also to value others, whether it's those that fit the confirmation bias or those that, you know, are of a complete different opinion. I think Tony Robbins, there's so many things that are amazing about him, but it's not like I believe in an agreement with 100%, maybe because of ignorance, it might be because of my experience. But nonetheless, there's so much value in what he has, you know, been able to create as an environment in which people learn and experience that has allowed me to see things uh, differently. And I'll comment more about that after the interview. But what's fascinating about the interview with Dr. Williams is I did not think it was going to go in the direction that it went. And it, you know, he answered questions, I would say, from a very interesting standpoint, because he's at a point where he's not trying to build his career. He's at a point where I would say people focus more on legacy than they focus on growing and, and expanding, right? He's in his early 80s and really isn't necessarily concerned with an image. I don't know if he've, he's ever been concerned with his image, you know, but he has taken a stand that is very admirable because it goes against the grain of what the racial norms are as well as with the social norms, the political norms. So I think you guys are going to really, really like the interview. There definitely is so much more that I could have asked and expanded upon, but for the sake of time and respect for him, I kind of cut it short and just stayed at a very, very high level. But I'm going to comment on a few things that I learned from it and some additional details to what I just mentioned uh, after the podcast. So if you guys want to stick around, great. If you guys got your fill, then hey, I'm cool with that too. So without further uh, delay, please... uh, Welcome and open your ears up to uh, my guest, Walter Williams. Dr. Williams, it really is an honor to have you on today. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thank you for inviting me. So I, I have to say I'm somewhat intimidated just because uh, I have a great deal of respect for you and, and what you've done throughout your career. And it took me a long time to come up with some of these questions. But the first thing I wanted to, to ask you 
is if you were to boil down your philosophy about societal or human progress, what would you say are the driving, like the core primary driving principles that you would arrive at? I guess my stepfather told me when I was a teenager, he said that if you ever want to get somewhere in this life, you got to learn to come early and stay late, which just means you have to work hard to to get what you want. And if you come early and stay late, you'll eventually succeed at most things that you're trying. And so in a sentence or two, that's uh, my philosophy. It's interesting that today, you know, it seems we're innovating to do less or to work less. That's the drive. Do you see that? What would you say to that? You know, I'm in my 84th year of life, so I've seen a lot of changes. And I see that people are forgiven for doing things and saying things that uh, would not have been uh, forgiven many, many years ago. And forms of behavior are accepted now that would not have been accepted years ago. And I think that we're the worst for it. Uh, that is, there's there are all these modern ideas that you, you shouldn't scold people, uh, you shouldn't hold them accountable, you should not punish them for doing the wrong things. I think that uh, you don't do very much for the individual. That's, that's not very compassionate at all. What would you say are the unintended consequences of that? Well, it, you just have a society of people that are less accountable. To put it another way, I remember that when I was about 12 years old and I was shining shoes and I'm making a little money for myself. And so one of my responsibilities with the money that I was making was to prepare, you know, save money, pay for my school lunches, which is 15 cents or, or 25 cents. And so I adopted the habit of spending my money and then going to my mother Wednesday or Thursday, ask her for a loan. I would always pay her back. But one time I asked her for a loan. And she says, no, I'm not going to give you any money. And I thought she was the meanest person on the face of the earth. And it must have been very hard for her to see me come home from school and virtually inhale the refrigerator. I was starving. But however, it's the last time that happened. But to bring it up to more modern times, I was telling that to my wife. I have a daughter who's now 44 years old, but when she was young, I was telling my wife the same thing. She said, oh, she thought my wife thought that was awful and she could never do that to my daughter. Well, it's one of those, yeah, I, I definitely see that I have, you know, two teenagers and a five-year-old and it seems that the, you know, society we're in, things are so easy to come by. An- answers are at our, our fingertips. Food is plentiful and mm-hmm. it's kind of conditioned people to want the here and now with really, without doing much work. I think failure comes a lot, not necessarily because, you know, something was done wrong, but because people just didn't, you know, they didn't have the persistence to carry it through. That's right. And what you're talking about is the downside of affluence. That is, we we have so much wealth. That is, we as parents today, we try to give our children what our parents, at least in speaking in my case, what our parents could not ever give us. But we wind up not giving our kids what our parents did give us. That is discipline, responsibility, and respect for authorities. My wife grew up in Mexico, and it was not a very nice neighborhood at all. It's one of those stereotypical neighborhoods, and that is a, to the T. What you know, I would say she started out as uh, as a parent wanting to provide kids, you know, essentially everything that that she had dreamed about. But there's unintended consequences to that because it forms habits that don't necessarily serve a human being later in life. I think you're absolutely right, and. And we're seeing this with uh, our youngsters expecting things to be given to them on a silver spoon. 
kids graduating from college not knowing very much, but expect to be a vice president <laughs> the first <laughs> month or two on the job. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is the, it's the reality that we live in. And I look at, you know, how you have championed free markets, personal liberty, limited government. And I would say, you know, today that is definitely not the the guiding principle that society is using. Where do you see maybe, you know, what we've just been discussing with the mindset and perspective of the rising generation and as it relates to the principles that you have championed for so long? Well, I'm not very optimistic and I hope I'm wrong about not being very optimistic. But if you ask the question, being a little more general, some people have asked me, well, what can we do? Where is our country headed? And I ask uh, people, are Americans as human beings, are we any way basically different from the Romans, the Spanish, the French, the British? These are great empires of the past that went down the tubes. And they went down the tubes for generally the same thing that we're doing today, that is bread and circuses, people expecting government to take care of them. Matter of fact, uh, you know, in 1887, that Queen Victoria's Jubilee, that if you had told somebody, if someone had said that Great Britain would become a third-rate nation, challenged on the high seas by a sixth-rate nation, Argentina, and almost lose, you would have been put into the insane asylum. Uh, that is, it was inconceivable that anything would happen to Great Britain, but however it did, and what's happening in the United States, we're headed the same way, maybe at a different rate. But we're going down the tubes. And our basic big problem that most Americans do not appreciate is that we have a moral problem. And the big moral problem that we have as a nation, as as American people, is that the average American believes that it's okay for the United States Congress to forcibly use one American to serve the purposes of another American. That means that is uh, to take your money and my money to give the farmers, to bail out banks, to give the poor people, to give the foreign aid, all the thousands of federal programs. The average American thinks that is okay, and that's not a part of our history. It's nowhere authorized in the United States Constitution for Congress to be in the business of taking the money of one person and giving to another. And matter of fact, if I did the same thing privately, I would be condemned as a thief and imprisoned because that is nothing more than legalized theft. Now, I believe, and I'm not saying, I'm not making an argument about taxes. That is, we all should pay our share of the constitutionally mandated functions of the federal government. But there's nothing in the Constitution that authorizes Congress taking the earnings of one person and giving it to another. And now, I'm not saying that I'm not for helping our fellow man in need. I think helping one's fellow man in need by reaching into one's own pockets to do so is praiseworthy and laudable. Helping one's fellow man in need by reaching into somebody else's pockets to do so, I think is worthy of condemnation. And for the Christians among us, when God gave Moses the Eighth Commandment saying, Thou shalt not steal, he probably did not mean thou shalt not steal unless you get a majority vote in the United States Congress. I heard a quote recently that I was thinking about as you were speaking, explaining that, where beliefs are a poor substitute for experience. And I look at what you just said. On the surface, it seems like it is a moral good where people are being taken care of. 
the same time, you don't provide and don't allow for the actual experience of people to take care of others and be charitable. That's right. And the American people are the most charitable people on the face of earth. That is, all these welfare programs did not start until the 1950s or 1960s and maybe a few in the 1930s. And so we went from a poor nation in 1792 until about the 1930s and became the richest nation and the most powerful nation on the face of earth without all these programs that people say are necessary. I mean, for example, Social Security, people say that is necessary. Well, the Social Security system started in 1936. And you say, well, what in the world did we do between 1792 and 1936 to take care of old people? Well, old people died in the homes of their children. That is, there's something to be said in the biblical admonition to honor thy mother and father. And now, with Social Security and all these programs for older elderly people, People don't have to honor their mother and father. They can get somebody else to honor their mother and father through the tax code. So we have some basic moral problems in our society, and I don't see any cure for them. Well, on top of what we've been talking about, again, robbing the experience of experiencing charity and experiencing taking and giving and contributing to somebody else's life for their well-being, it also comes down to that you know, I would say it's a, it's a drive that we have to overcome adversity. I mean, every movie that is popular out there seems to have a similar theme where somebody overcomes adversity, they overcome a challenge. And when you essentially are robbing people from saving for their retirement or robbing people from getting a job and experiencing how to you know, navigate those waters and improve their resume, you're essentially replacing, you know, those experiences with, you know, a supplement or a band-aid to it. But again, it goes to that, that saying, the leaves are a poor excuse for the actual experience. That is absolutely right. And one of the tragedies, and it's a, the tragedy cannot be avoided, and that is people tend to think that what we see today has always been. And that's not true. For example, you're talking about people working. I had The last time I asked my mother for money other than loans for uh, lunches, was when I was 12 years old or 13 years old. And I had all kinds of jobs after school. And we lived in the Richard Island Housing Project, which is part of the slums in North Philadelphia. And I did think after school jobs, shining shoes, shoveling snow with my cousin on the Reading Railroad platform and caddying at golf courses. Now, all these job work opportunities do not exist today for young people. That is, you'll never see a 13, 14-year-old catting on a golf course. You'll never see 13, 14-year-old kids uh, shoveling snow off of uh, train platforms. The Railroad Workers Union does not want to see a kid doing that for $20 when their member can get $200 for doing the same thing, so they're able to use the law to block that opportunity. And there, there are many, many work opportunities that are gone today. And the tragedy is that the average person thinks that it's always been this way. That is the regulations and the kind of behaviors that we see today. The average person thinks, well, it's always been that way. And I look at, you know, my, I had a great conversation with my 13-year-old yesterday, and she's, she's one of the more entrepreneurial and loves to always be active and has wanted to work for so long. And she didn't fathom this idea of a paper route, but that's what I had when I was, when I was her age. And so she, you know, has this bug inside of her to work and it's just the process and the experience of actually doing something 
and getting remunerated for it. And that's today. It's like there's lots of tenancy for leisure. It seems that the more we're progressing as a society, the less fulfilled and happy we are. And do you think it's because of that dynamic, not being able to have these types of experiences? Well, I think it's that and many other things that we just accept today. If, for example, if you look at some of my columns, I give references to it. The behavior of students towards teachers. Today, students curse out teachers. Teachers are assaulted. For example, in the city of Baltimore, I think the city, uh, 2014, 2015, on the average of four teachers were assaulted each day of the year. And when I was coming up a kid, one would not dream of even cursing at a teacher, much less assaulting a teacher. And I remember holding my hand out in elementary school for the ruler. You know, I did something wrong, and the teacher whacked me at my hand as a ruler. A teacher doing the same thing today would take me carted off, would be fired if not carted off to prison. Or corporal punishment. People today, they replace what worked with what sounds good. <laughs> and, and, and I remember I got my butt spanked a whole lot. And the worst time to get a spanking is in the summertime when the windows are open and when your friends outside can hear you copping the plea. <laughs> and then you go outside and they start teasing you. My mother, they're doing the same thing today. They, somebody would send child protective services to arrest her. Well, this is, a, you know, the we could probably spend an hour talking about just accountability and the nature of accountability and how that is, I would say, essential for growth. I wanted to end with this just because we're short on time. So something intrigued me recently. I know you know who Hernando de Soto is. I've been going through one of his books, The, the Mystery of Capital, and it talks just about the infrastructure as a essential piece of establishing capital and having the human mind engage with that capital, create the capital, and then exchange with it and so forth, which I think is a, a byproduct oftentimes of a, a free market society or a laissez-faire capitalistic society. And it, it caused me to think about how you know the U.S., for the flaws we often give it, there's such an incredible infrastructure here. So it's made me you know just think through what is the proper role of a government? What is the proper role of establishing these type of fundamental you know, foundational systems of, of law. And it, why is it that some countries like the U.S. establish that and others don't? I think that one of the things that goes unappreciated about capitalism is that throughout mankind's history, the way that people accumulated vast amount of wealth was through plundering, looting, and enslaving their fellow man. But with the rise of capitalism, it became possible for people to accumulate great wealth by pleasing or serving their fellow man, finding out what their fellow man wants or needs, and then getting the resources to produce it in the most efficient manner. And so if you look at wealthy men through men through history, how did Henry Ford become so wealthy? He produced things that satisfied his fellow man. Bill Gates, how did he become so wealthy? He didn't rob anybody. He just produced a program, Windows programs that satisfied his fellow man. And if you look around at the world today, and if you were to rank societies according to whether they're at the free market end of the economic spectrum or the communist end of the political spectrum, economic spectrum, and then rank countries according to Freedom House, according to personal liberties, and you rank countries in terms of per capita income, you would find something that's not strange at all, that the countries that are closest to the free market end of the economic spectrum 
not only have higher income, but they have greater protection of their liberty. The countries that are towards the socialist or communist end of the economic spectrum, those are the people who are the poorest in the world and tend to have the fewest freedoms. So if anybody wants to promote wealth and liberty, they should also at the same time promote free market economic systems. So maybe as we end just some of your concluding thoughts, where were you most influenced to believe the way that you believe, think the way that you think? Like, what are some of those pivotal experiences that you had, whether it's reading a book or meeting somebody or a person of influence that caused you to think in a different way? I tell somebody, maybe it's not nice for me to say this, say it this way, but I am very happy being 84 years old. I'm very happy that I got most of my education before it became fashionable for white people to like black people. And what I mean by that is that when I got a A grade in a class, it was an honest guide A. When I got a C, it was an honest guide C. Nobody was feeling sorry for me. And they, they held me to high standards. They didn't feel sorry. They weren't giving me any, any breaks because they say, oh, well, gee, this, uh, this legacy of slavery or discrimination, et cetera, et cetera. They just held me up to very, very high standards. And so I think that people, I received my doctorate in economics from UCLA. And I had some very tenacious professors that didn't cut me any slack. Matter of fact, when I took the PhD exam, there were 14 students who took the exam. No, I was saying 16 students who took the exam and 13 flunked. And the professors came to me and they say, Williams, your exam was among the worst. But we think that you can do better. So they gave me a reading list. They gave me this and gave me that. And next year when I took the exam, the PhD micro exam, I passed it. So, if, however, if I had gone to Harvard or Berkeley, they might have taken into account slavery, discrimination, et cetera, et cetera, and given me a break, just passed me anyway. And as a result of having gone to Harvard or somewhere of these liberal departments, I'm a better economist as a result. Would you say that there is a correlation between the extremity of the experience and the actual growth, and that, let's say it pertains to, as it pertains to an individual. So what I'm hearing you say, because of the increased pressure and your ability to rise to that challenge, enabled you to learn more, think more, be challenged more, and subsequently grow more. That's absolutely right. If you look at any sport, I mean, football, boxing, basketball, and the, what the coaches t- talk to these kids or young people playing, they don't give them any break it up. They're not treating them with kid gloves. They're trying to get the best out of them. And that works when people say, well, we're not going to accept any less than the best that you can do. And fortunately, I had that experience. So what was it? I mean, were you born or identify with just a, a level of confidence at an early age? Or was it instilled by your, your parents? Like, where oh, did that oh, confidence was, come oh. from? Because most people would cave to that and quit. But what allowed you to rise up, for lack of a better term? My father deserted us when I was three and my sisters two, and my mother raised us. And she would always tell us, look, you're number two, you got to do better. You know, you're in a society where there's discrimination, you have to be better. And she wasn't telling us the message that somebody should feel sorry, somebody should give you a break. It was just very, very high expectations. And matter of fact, one time when my mother was told how I was misbehaving in school, she took away all of my privileges until the next report card came out and I had improved my grades. <laughs> and so that's tough. And I, she is very, very important in my life. And she's very, you know, and she's responsible for 
for setting me up for success. Did you use that same, I didn't plan on asking this, but maybe as a final question, like how have you used that, whether it's with uh, your daughter or your students over the years, how have you created the environment in order for them to grow the most in your presence? I hold my students up to uh, high expectations and they just have to uh, cut the mustard and nothing uh, less is accepted. My daughter is a little bit different because I guess fathers are a little bit weaker with their daughters as opposed to their sons. So I guess I was not as pressing with my daughter, but nonetheless, she turned out to be a very, very good person and a very successful person. Well, Dr. Williams, it's been incredible. I know your time is valuable and it's it, and uh, we're kind of at the tail end of this interview, but thank you so much for what you've written about, what you stood for for so many, so many years. What are ways in which listeners can learn more about you and also purchase some of the books that you've uh, written or read some of the articles that you've published over the years? There's a lot of material that I've done, and it's at my website. It's WalterEWilliams.com, WalterEWilliams.com. And also, there's a uh, autobiography. There was a, a video made based on my autobiography that I wrote a number of years ago, and it's called Suffer No Fools. And that's a one-hour video, and that's available at my website as well. Okay, we'll make sure that, I think I have those links already, but we'll make sure that we'll put those in the show notes so people can access it if they weren't able to write that down. Okay. Well, Dr. Williams, thank you so much again, and I really appreciate the time today. This has been a great conversation. And thank you for inviting me. Take care. Hey, everyone, Patrick here. Listen, most of you know that I wrote a book last year called Heads I Win, Tails You Lose, A Financial Strategy to Reignite the American Dream. And the book has, has sold tens of thousands of copies We're really excited about it. So for those of you who are new listening and haven't had your chance to pick one up, you guys can actually get it for free. So if you head over to thewealthstandard.com forward slash book, then all you have to do is pay for shipping and you will get your uh, copy for free. So head over to thewealthstandard.com forward slash book. Thanks for the support. Hey guys, thanks for sticking with me to this post-interview commentary. And I'm going to get into expanding on a few of the things I I talked about pre-interview. I hope you guys liked Walter Williams. If you haven't heard him before, heard him speak, he's he's one of those guys where you listen to him, you experience him, and you immediately know that there is a lot of wisdom there and a lot of experiences over the years that has caused him to reflect and solidify his view of the world. And I'll get into that maybe in just a second because of of the environment he was in in which he was able to be nurtured and grow. But I found it interesting, the first response to the question I proposed, which is, you know, how would you describe your primary driving principles? If you boiled everything down as all the things he's experienced, read, teaching students, human progress, what's the primary driving principle? And it was, it was hard work. And it was interesting. I don't, I'm not sure if it's hard work, meaning the time. I think it's more the intensity around the work and the persistence, that dynamic as it relates to work. And the reason why I say that, I've talked before on the podcast about this, you know, the notion of the second law of thermodynamics, which is the idea of entropy, right? Where when something dies without an environment, it stays the same, but with the environment determines what it becomes. And again, that goes to the first law of thermodynamics, which in large part is that energy can't be created or destroyed, it essentially transforms. And so I found it interesting where the environment, I, the example I used that I heard 
from Blair Singer was, you know, if a tree falls in the forest, it dies, right? Falls in the forest. If it stays in the forest, you know, it essentially becomes part of the forest. Okay, there's, you know, obviously it decomposes and it becomes food for the other trees and plants and so forth. But if a tree falls in a different environment, like a swamp, when it falls in the swamp, there's way more pressure than if it fell in the forest. And that pressure turns it into something different. And the higher degree of pressure in that environment allows for it to become coal and then eventually a diamond. So here you have one outcome based on an input, right? Here's the input of a dead tree. This is the outcome. Here's the input of a dead tree. And here's the outcome. The environment is what determines that. So I think it was interesting because when there's an environment of pressure, I believe human beings will often rise to the challenge or quit, of course. But if they do rise to the challenge, what they become in the process is pretty incredible. So having an environment in which you're able to be persistent, especially as it, as it pertains to an entrepreneur, looking at how difficult something is should be a opportunity to celebrate as opposed to be afraid of. And that, again, goes to what I've been learning a lot about just, you know, psychology, not from a formalized standpoint, but psychology, you know, in Tony Robbins' definition, you know, but that, that psychology is, you know, defined as, you know, the way in which we create meaning of something. And I think psychology, as it relates to, you know, who we are, it has in large part has to do with the environment that we're either in or the environment that we have uh, been in. And I think those environments are often not chosen. And that's what I'm going to speak to is how can you choose your, your environments and that, that dynamic versus not choosing an environment and, have, and ultimately having it chosen for you. So let me go to that first. So you look at one of the earlier episodes with Andy Tanner talking about this idea of free speech in a difficult environment in which students want to be protected from you know, emotional harm. I think that protection of emotional harm is the greatest harm itself because it enables this crowd effect and essentially the psychology and perspective is determined by the group and the crowd, not necessarily by the individual. A hard environment allows an individual really to dig deep and understand what is possible for themselves. And, you know, I believe that as you choose your environments and the higher the pressure is, the more you're going to grow and the more you're going to become. So this is where it comes down to why won't a person choose those difficult environments? I think it boils down to the principle of fear. And, you know, I, I look at, you know, fear and it's interesting because what people are afraid of, I think all boils down to the very same thing which is a feel of being discarded, feel of being worthless, insignificant, not smart, not loved. And I think that fear is often a, a defense mechanism. And I think it initiates, I think, the, especially these day and age, by being judged. But I heard a cool definition of judgment recently that has caused me to reflect on that. And the, the quote is that judgment is a mass that comes from the fear of being vulnerable and essentially the fear of being vulnerable is that people will see your weaknesses and then not value you, discard, discount you, and ultimately not like you, love you, or appreciate you. And I think people have a, this fear of that, which is incredible. But in the end, you know, I think if you understand those fundamentals, you're going to realize that it isn't your problem that someone's judging you. It's the person who's judging's problem. And it's their fears that are causing them to act that way. The more you understand about yourself and who you are and the meaning that comes from the circumstances of your life, 
the better you're going to be able to put yourself in challenging environments in order to grow the most. And so that's what I've been thinking a, a lot of these days. And it's really, you know, helped me because I, I look at how much noise that's out there in our world today. And it's difficult to concentrate. It's difficult to focus. And I believe that within that noise are chords, right? There's this harmonious formula in which we have a better experience and even better experience of life, but also become successful, which I think is a part of that, you know, fulfilling experience of life. And I'm not sure what each note is of those chords, because we all know what noise sounds like. Okay, just, you know, my kids play instruments, but going to like elementary school orchestra concerts, I mean, that's, that's noise. And you probably would rather listen to something else. But I, I look at then going to, you know, a symphony, an, an orchestra that's very well-trained, professional, that's one of the most gratifying experiences. Same instruments, okay, same music, okay, but completely different experience, right? because of how all that noise kind of comes together in a harmonious way. So I think there's a formula, in essence, for success, a formula for growth, a formula for fulfillment. And I don't 100% understand it, but that's what I'm thinking about and seeking, right? Not just for me, but also for you, because I believe, you know, human beings are after very similar things. They're after the way something feels, they're after, you know, whatever environment, whatever dynamic, whatever thing gives them that sense, that emotion, that feeling. And I believe that we make it really hard to do, which is also pretty, pretty funny. But anyway, I really enjoyed Walter Williams. It caused me to just reflect because here's a guy that has, like I said, nothing, nothing to lose. He's, you know, he's already made his, his legacy. He's written some incredible books. He's also, you know, taught thousands of students and made a difference. Now he's at the latter part of his life. And for him to answer the way that he answered the uh, first question, the way that he did was really interesting and really, uh, really fascinating. And you can see how it led to the success that he had in his, you know, his industry. But I think facing, you know, the environment that he was in, I mean, think about it. He's, he's a African-American and he is basically cutting against the grain of the liberal agenda, which is often the stereotype of that racial segment of, of society. And I look at, you know, also his views on economics and politics, which is also extremely against the grain. It's free markets, laissez-faire capitalism. And that's put him in a very interesting environment in which he's probably thought deeply about the important things of life. And this is the way in which he decided to answer those questions, which I think should tell us something. So anyway, I hope you guys learned something from uh, the podcast this week. I got a couple of cool interviews coming down the pipe before we wrap up the season and uh, hope you guys are having an, uh, an awesome summer and really enjoying yourselves and hope you're getting a lot from the podcast and it's helping you to be even more successful than you already are. Okay. That's it for this week. Talk to you next time. See ya. Thank you for listening to the wealth standard podcast. Be sure to visit the show's official website, thewealthstandard.com for appropriate disclaimers and terms of service. Guest opinions are their own. If you require specific investing, financial, legal, tax, or any other specialized advice, please consult an appropriate professional. We welcome and appreciate reviews of the show. Head on over to iTunes or Stitcher to leave your review. 
And don't forget to subscribe to the show to get access to every new episode and exclusive interviews this season. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you next time. Oh,